BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So you say, you say it's not a shakeup, but you guys are down. And it makes Says sense who? that there would... Says polls, who? Most of them. All of them? Says who? Polls. I just told you, I answered your question. Which polls? All of them. Okay. And your okay. question is? Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We've got a great show today. Uh, Joan Walsh uh, of The Nation, formerly of Salon, is going to be joining us and talking about a number of topics, the 2016 presidential campaign, Donald Trump, Stormy Daniels, and a bunch of other topics. But first, well, first of all, my co-host, David Tainter, is on vacation. So I'm here with Allegra Kirkland, a colleague of mine from TPM. Glad to be back. Hey, Josh. I'm glad to have you back. So t- today, you know, every- we're talking about, everybody's talking about this bizarre story of Stormy Daniels and this protracted litigation that she's now having in public with Donald Trump. But we have one of our old friends who is a a big part of this story, and that is Michael Cohen. And Michael Cohen is someone we know. I mean, we know him. You just heard him as the the says who guy on CNN getting in a fight with uh, Brianna Keeler uh, back in in, uh, 2016. He also shows up in the Steele dossier, but we don't really know if that stuff is is accurate. We don't know if the Steele dossier stuff is accurate. But what we do know is that, surprisingly, Michael Cohen has, first of all, Michael Cohen is a really rich guy, which I totally did not know when I just thought he was like Trump's like punk lawyer who shows up on TV. This is a very wealthy man in his own right. And he also has deep family and business ties to Ukraine and Russia. So Allegra and I, we've been reporting on Michael Cohen, I mean, a good year or so. So before we get into what he's doing now with with Stormy Daniels, because it actually connects up with this, we want to talk a little about his business background. So Allegra, let's just go through. What are the, what do we know about Michael Cohen's business background? What are the the businesses he's been in? Yeah. So last, I would say, early summer, Josh and I both started doing some digging into the various enterprises Michael Cohen is engaged in. And one of the things we noticed, so both he and his brother-in-law are married to Ukrainian women. Um, Or his brother. He and his brother. I'm sorry. Yes, he and his brother. There's there's in-laws involved here, too. So it's very, you got to bear with us. Absolutely. So, but with his brother's father-in-law, this Ukrainian guy, one of the businesses they were involved in is this Ukrainian ethanol production business. And they were sort of, basically the focus was exporting American farm equipment to Ukraine. So they had this various ethanol businesses. That was one point. Um, And then another one was back in 2003, he was involved with another two Ukrainian uh, nationals in this casino boat venture in South Florida. And he put in like, I think, 1.5 million of his own 
money is to be a partner with these guys. And, you know, the business is sort of trundling along well for a while there and then went belly up and they got sued, I think, by like 25 different people. And like it turned, you know, they just didn't pay all this stuff they were owed to the marina companies and all these vendors. And Cohen is basically like interviewed about it by BuzzFeed and is like, sucks that I got a bad deal and wasted yeah. all this money. So it, was, it wasn't a white shoe operation. No. No. Okay. So so casino boats. Now what else? And then another major one um, is taxi medallions, which, you know, in New York City are incredibly valuable. And he and his wife, um, his wife, Laura, uh, owned, I think, a total of 30. And they were managed by this guy, Simon Garber, who is another Ukrainian. Um, and he, and not to say there's anything sketchy about Ukrainians right. inherently, An immigrant but it's to the just, United States, you know, Ukrainian it's a pattern yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and Cohen's wife is also from Ukraine. Yes. yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of Ukraine stuff happens. So he was in business with, with Simon Garber, like 20 plus or 20 years ago, sold his bit, you know, sold his stake of the taxi business. Uh, but then we found out, you found out that more recently, and that's the thirty medallions that mm-hmm. Garber was still like managing mm-hmm. them. So, and what's the story with that? So, big money in 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 taxi medallions and taxis, managing taxis. Yeah. So, so Garber was um, basically paying Cohen like twenty three hundred a month per medallion. So that's like thirty medallions times that number. Um, and you know that. That agreement was sort of in place and fine. This is key because this actually taxi medallions connects up with Stormy Daniels. <laughs> Surprisingly, this is, yeah, yeah. Here's okay. So here's so another thing. Uh, Michael Cohen, when he was a teenager, he was friends with Felix Sater because mm-hmm. they were both in that sort of Ukraine emigre uh, Jewish kind of world out in the other. And I'm Jewish, so like I don't want any crap over this. I can say this, okay? So. Now, here's the thing. Now, in, in the Stormy Daniels lawsuit, and I know things are flying around really quickly here, but bear with me. In the Stormy Daniels lawsuit, uh, she says that Michael Cohen tried to intimidate her into staying silent. And this is just not like what happened back in October 2016, but in the last couple weeks when she started giving off signals that she was going to talk. So that can sound like, well, maybe that's just boilerplate, you know, intimidate me. But Allegra found a lot of stuff with Michael Cohen that makes it seem like maybe she was talking about something very specific. And here's where we're going to go back to. I wanted to kind of preview this because, okay, so now we're we're in the later dispute with Simon Garber, who is someone who's had some run-ins with the law and is maybe not someone who you want to get in a fight with. with. (laughs) Right. All right. So what's the story? So, yeah. So they had this agreement, you know, in place in 2006. It was all fine. Then in November 2011, um, Cohen basically goes and gets this, this, puts this new contract in place that includes, you know, uh, language about arbitration and increases what each medallion's worth to three grand a month and whatever. And then like a couple months later, April 2012, he just, he sues Garber, says, I don't want to be part of this agreement anymore. Like you're a sketchy operator. I don't want anything to do with it. And Garber's like, what the hell is this about? And basically in, you know, these court documents are reviewed, he says, Cohen came to his house when he was away on business. Like waited for him to go on vacation, basically. And his wife was home and he made a big show about, you know, this this is urgent. You need to sign these. Like this has to happen right now. So she signed this contract. And, and, you know, Garber alleges he had nothing to do with it. He manipulated, is the word he used, his wife into like signing these new contracts and um, that were unfavorable to him. So So. so basically Cohen – 
like unilaterally just says, okay, we're going to do a new contract. Um, it just, you know, a much more friendly contract to me, Michael Cohen. And then waits for <laughs> for Garber, who's this, you know, again, someone who's had run-ins with the law, waits for him to be out of town and then shows up and, and, and you know, puts the squeeze on the guy's wife. That's like, that's that's hardball. And it's another intimidating woman example. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. a really famous one from that sort of came out during the campaign is, you know, Ivana Trump. Um basically at, at one point has accused her husband of, of sexually assaulting her, of raping her. I when mean, use the word rape. Use the word rape, yeah. Um, which is important to this story actually. But um and the Daily Beast sort of dug this up uh early on in the campaign. It was like, you know, this was an allegation made in this book about Trump and, you know, his hair implants, you know, this um, this doctor that she recommended gave him bad hair implants. This happened allegedly after he was in a rage. And, you know, so so Cohen was confronted by the beast. Like, what do you say on your client's behalf in this story? And um, yeah, let's read the quote because the quote, the quote is really. Yeah. First of all, he also uh, totally falsely says you can't rape your spouse, which is not true. Um, but he says to the reporter on the record, uh, I will make sure that you and I meet one day while we're in the courthouse, and I will take you for every penny you still don't have, and I will come after your daily beast and everybody else that you possibly know. So I'm warning you, tread very fucking lightly, because what I'm going to do to you is going to be fucking disgusting. You understand me? You write a story that has Mr. Trump's name in it with the word rape, and I'm going to mess your life up for as long as you're on this frickin' planet. You're going to have judgments against you, so much money, you'll never know how to get out from underneath it. That sounds like a threat to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the thing with with uh, with Michael Cohen is that not only so it so it is totally plausible that he said some very nasty and threatening things to Stormy Daniels. This isn't like a theoretical possibility. What always strikes me about that is that not only is he threatening, but he clearly wants to be seen as threatening. He wants yeah. to publicly be seen as threatening. Mm-hmm. That's part of it's like a. You know, it's it's like mob tactics, yeah. basically. He's known as Trump's pit bull. You know, yes. he's, he's, he he styles himself in this way, and Trump likes him for that reason. He's, exactly. He's his Roy Cohn. He's the yeah. guy who's going to go out yeah. and do that, battle that for That appeals him, to you know? Trump. That kind of like, you know, that, that kind of threats and sort of macho bullshit and everything. Okay. So now, uh, in this episode, we have a very special guest, um, a... a I don't want to say an old friend, longtime friend of mine. Old too. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, no, I don't mean like we are old. I mean like we are old friends. Like we are long, friends of long standing. Twenty right. twenty years. I you know I was just thinking I think nineteen years because impeachment the actual impeachment trial was like December January ninety eight ninety nine right so nineteen years It'll, ago yeah so now you're at the Nation you were at Salon for. Seventeen years? years. Seventeen years. Okay. Yeah. So we are. So Joan has 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 joined us today, and so okay, we're we're talking about Michael Cohen and Stormy Daniels. Here's what I want to ask you: Is it really possible that after all the accusations that hit Trump after the Access Hollywood tape in October 2016, after the Me Too movement that kind of kicks up uh, almost a year later? That it is going to be the Stormy Daniels thing, which seems to be like one of the few consensual relationships that that Donald Trump exactly. has had. That this is going to be the thing that does it. So, t- what's going on? Where, where do you see this going? You know, I I think 
you're right. It's not so much the relationship. He's got at least, I think, 19 women who's accused him of assault, harassment, something non-consensual. So consensual relationship with a porn star, who cares? You know, it's up, Melania cares. She can yeah. care. But, you know, the, I don't think, uh, look, we'd all be kind of titillated by it. Um, I'm not going to lie. But I don't think that, that the affair brings him down. Um, I think it is however they did intimidate her it is whatever they did whatever happened with this hush money um i you know michael cohen is a pit bull uh who could also wind up being disbarred it's kind of like if part of what he says is true and trump didn't know these things then he should be disbarred then you know he's he's violated uh all the standards for lawyers in and, new york and that, and that would be basically acting on your client's behalf without Telling, telling him, yeah. like I paid her off. Um, I've also suggested the only thing left for him to do is to say that I had the affair with Stormy Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, there, there, then there's st- stuff in the document in in the you know non-disclosure go away hush document, alluding to uh, tapes and photos and uh, certain so, still photos, certain still, still fo- images. images, still images. That's images. right, images. Uh, so they might not be images of Michael Cohen. So maybe he couldn't yeah. pull off that lie. Um, so I think it's going to be all around the the payment. I suppose there are uh, certain things that he could, Trump could have done, captured in images that might go beyond what we've seen, heard heard about before. Um, there's also a weird reference to paternity information um, in in that document. So well, that that's one of the mysteries in my mind that that it's in a doc. It's it is a fairly long document. You can it's it's everywhere on the internet, so you can you can look it up. Yes, and I think it's clear that some of the language in there is boilerplate, i.e., you know. Trump does a lot of sex NDAs, so kind of get right. this one off the rack, <laughs> right? So it's not necessarily clear to me that, that, that every single thing in it is exactly, exactly. specifically relevant exactly. to this. Um, but may you know? But, who knows? We don't know that who it's knows? not right. And I don't know. Do you have any uh, boilerplate sexual NDAs? <laughs> well, look, the last, lying around know, the TPM look, office that we can look, look I, at. I, I have to do sexual NDAs every <laughs> I'm going uh, to, few months. I'm going to go to LegalZoom and see what, yeah, they, exactly, what they put exactly. in there. No, yeah, no. We have, that is not, that has not come up a lot for us. Um, but it, but, but in, in seriousness, you know, this is clearly, I mean, we know, this isn't even speculating that, that there's th- th- one of, one of the women who accused him of misconduct uh, back in October 2016, her uh, stage name as as a porn actress is Jessica Drake, I believe. Yes. Uh, she actually, we know her lawyer, Gloria Allred, has said, I believe, that there is an NDA in place with between her and Trump. Uh, and there's lots of other there's lots of other examples. So we know he does this. I guess my point there. And then is, Jessica yeah. Drake shows up in the stormy, in the stormy thing mm-hmm. as, as someone as, who can corroborate or someone that she may have passed information to. Yes. That's interesting. Then you also wonder could Stormy Daniel or Stephanie Clifford, uh, her real name, uh, corroborate Jessica Drake's claims about non-consensual groping and kissing. I mean... Well, here, here's the other thing is that both of them met Trump at this, like, golf tournament, whatever, at Lake Tahoe right. in 2006. So this is... Uh, 
you know, th- th- we know this, that they both met him at that uh, event. And at least based on what Daniels has said, the, re- the relationship, the interaction with both women started at the same time and, and the same place. So it doesn't take too big of a leap of the imagination to think that the different players could have been all together at one point or at right. least talked about it afterwards. Because what, what Joan's getting at is that at one point in this agreement, Daniels has to say, all right, who, you know, who have you told any of this about ever? And she lists four people. And this woman under the name, I think, Angel Ryan. That's right. Which I guess is her birth name, uh, comes up there. So anyway, but you were you were you were saying well, I, I, you know, it's, they they could conceivably corroborate each other's stories. There are other women there. They're they're you know publicly he's there because we you know there were advertisements about him being you know a featured player. Um, there are stories about it, uh, and there at one point we don't know if Stormy Daniels is one of the women, but Jessica Drake I believe says that she's there with a couple of other women, and he right. kisses them all. Right. You know, without asking. That's interesting. I hadn't. So maybe we've never heard who those women are. No, we haven't. We it it could be Stormy. It could not be Stormy. She hasn't said. So you know, there are con- conceivably, you know, there there are the several you know pockets of, of information and and scandal. Uh, who paid? Well, you know, Michael Cohen. Why he paid? Was that legal? Um, then there's the question of what activities were they? She and Trump engaged in that could shock the Trump voter be, right. or, or Paul Ryan or someone <laughs> beyond, you know, beyond what's already known. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it continues, you know, continues to unfold. Yeah. I think if they're just photographic or video evidence is just going to take it to a different plane. And we saw that, I mean, with, with Franken, I mean, that there right. was such a visceral exactly. and immediate reaction to that because you that can't one say photo. no to a photograph yeah, yeah, you can't absolutely. say it didn't happen absolutely. and it absolutely. sticks in people's heads yep. and it's just I think that would be like such a different level than the Access Hollywood was just locker room talk you know this is like I'm seeing it with my own eyes you know well there's also because one thing that is clearly not boilerplate in that agreement is that it talks about text messages uh, and that and you know back to that point about boilerplate there's one part in the agreement where they're not talking about, you know, paintings and video, you know, kind of everything under the sun. They're talking about text message logs and and certain still images. Um, so, you know, if they're doing kind of like flirty or dirty, or whatever. Yeah, whatever in text messages, that's also a little... That's a little problematic. Flirty is probably and fine, also tragic. I'm like cringing yeah, at the, yeah, the thought yeah. of Trump none of sex, I don't so. want it. None of us <laughs> want to see it. None of us. Well, clearly, this is these these were text messages that that Donald Trump slash uh, Michael Cohen were willing to spend substantial amounts of money to get back, and that's what the whole agreement was about. Right now, one thing that I think has really uh, Transformed this story is that if you look at the lawyer that Stormy Daniels had in October 2016, it was sort of it doesn't seem like she had great representation in in October 2016, but now she's got this guy uh, Michael Aven- Avenatti, I think I'm, I have have his name. This I've looked this guy up. This guy is like a power player out in Los Angeles, and he has a reputation. For, I mean, he's won big judgments, but he clearly likes to fight. 
and and he likes cases. I, I I've I've talked to some people who've observed his career. He likes cases like this, where he may not win much money, but he can be on TV constantly, and you know just clobber Trump. So here's the thing. So they so we know he announced last week that they, they she gave an interview to 60 Minutes, and that's already done. Right now, what I have heard is that. She told 60 Minutes in that interview that Trump, in a sexual context, likes women who are not nice to him. Ah, uh, I have not who, heard that. Yes, yes. I have, I have heard this, and I, I know this to be true. So that puts it in a kind of a different light. I mean, I think in a lot of ways for Donald Trump, you know, having sex with a porn star is kind of on brand for him. Sure. You know, so... That, but you mean dominatrix is off brand? For, <laughs> for, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I think, I think I'm rolling it around in my head for the first time. I think that would be. I don't think that works with the Trump brand. Yeah. I mean, not that I've done like a deep study of this aspect of the Trump brand, but I think that would be something that that <laughs> yeah. he really does not want to be public. His voters will care, but I think that that will bruise his ego for sure. I don't think he'd like oh, to be seen as a you know meek in any circumstance, right? You know? And if yeah. there were, and if there were indeed it, images, well, that yes. would be that. That's the kind of thing that that could be, yeah, end things. I think. Yeah, it's, it's funny because you know the PT has always seemed like this. You know, something that will probably never actually materialize. Right. And then this whole other set of potential. Well, that's the thing is it, 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 it does. When I first heard this, it did make me think. It doesn't tell us anything directly about the, you know, purported Russian P tape, but it does. I don't know. It makes it a little more plausible in it, my mind. The, the compromat exists in many places, yeah, perhaps Russia, but you start to you also start to think they're pushing hard on her. Maybe there are other NDAs, and there are other women out there with other interesting images. Uh, you know, I'm I'm totally talking without knowledge just here, just speculating, spe- absolutely hypotheticals, absolutely yeah. speculating. Uh, but it it does, you know, the way that they fought about this uh, it raises that question too. She's also said she's happy to pay him back. But I don't know what that gambit gets her because one hundred thirty thousand dollars is not that much money either way. I mean, right. it is for me. If right. you guys want to, right. you know, give me one hundred thirty thousand yes. dollars, I'm here yes. for it. Uh, but for, but for them, I don't think it, you know. I don't see that that changes anything, and I don't think it changes anything legally. So that seems like an interesting gambit. Yeah, I don't think it, as a legal matter, you can't like sign a contract and say like, okay, I'm just giving you money back. We're oh, all yeah. good. Yeah, no, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. But it seems to. It seems to me it's sort of brilliant on her and her lawyer's part because it just it creates another news cycle and it also allows them to say like, hey, I'll give you the money back. All we want to do is talk. Right. This it is kind not of, about money. Right. It just puts it 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 puts him in a in a bad position. Now, I want to get back to one thing we've learned in 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 the Me Too months is that there is a whole legal underground of NDAs covering up also not just consensual affairs that are embarrassing, right. but crimes. So is, is I feel like that plays in here, the fact that that has kind of broken down in, the, in, in, in recent months, that these NDAs are just not seen as okay. 
Right. They're seen as kind of dirty. They're seen as part of the apparatus of keeping these secrets that shouldn't be secrets, some of which are actual crimes. This one may maybe not. Um, so I think that plays into it, too, that there's something dirty about these men who go out, who, these wealthy men who sign these NDAs, make these women sign NDAs, give them some money, a pittance or a fortune, uh, and, and cover up their misdeeds that way, especially when they're president, but, right. you know, but in other contexts, too. Uh, so, so I think, I think that's, that's operating as well. Do you, do these stories, I mean, if, if in a way they're not, comb- they're not related, if this is a consensual, you know, a consensual encounter, a consensual relationship, but they, they, this is part of that same, this is part of the Me Too story. It, How do you see it playing I, into that? Is it, or am I wrong on the whole? No, the I whole think thing? you're. I think you're right. Um, I think that it, you know, it, it speaks to uh, a, a a kind of misogyny of, of you know looking at women as exclusively as sex objects and whether you want to grope them, you know, kiss them. Uh, throw in a tic-tac or grab them by their whatever, right. uh, there's all that. But then there's also, you know, having two or three or four porn stars in your room, thinking that that's part of, that's part of manhood, that's part of power. Your wife has just had a baby. Uh, your third wife has just had a baby. She's home alone. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's really disgusting masculine behavior that men have gotten away with, especially wealthy men, for a long, long time. So, uh, it speaks to an attitude about women, and you know, we and we add in the disgusting things he said about his daughter, and you know his his daughter having a great figure, and perhaps he would date her if, if she wasn't his daughter. And I was glad, you know, I'm glad Allegra brought in that uh, the stuff about uh, the the fact that she charged him with rape in divorce documents. She a, used a sworn the, document, a sworn, a sworn deposition. A sworn deposition. And the description of what he did, he was mad. He didn't like his implants. And he was in pain. He was so in he was pain. Like he also ripped her hair out by the chunk just so that she would feel the same pain as well as sexually assaulted her. So when she did kind of step back from it, she all she said was, I wouldn't use the word rape today. But she didn't say he didn't sexually assault me. He didn't pull out my hair by the chunk. She never walked back the actual allegations. And I just don't think they've ever gotten enough attention because he's a monster. Like, that's monstrous behavior. No, this, th- th- and it's this a is sworn a key, deposition. Yeah, no, this is a key point. And even in they, they, she, his lawyer, you know, whoever put out these statements that tried to sort of tamp it down, said, well, I didn't mean in the legal sense of rape. Cohen said she she meant she meant she was emotionally violated, which nobody says rape to mean emotional violation, right. I don't think, in casual convert. Did he emotionally violate her hair? Yeah, I, you it's know? just not credible. Yeah, and, and it's telling to me, though, that people deny all sorts of things that are true. It's telling to me that she has never denied it, even though I have no doubt that he desperately wanted and his lawyers desperately right. wanted her to deny it. It, it, it is fascinating um, that she d- that she didn't. I also thought it got too little attention during the campaign, honestly. I wrote about it. A few people wrote about it. If you bring it up, you know, I'm on TV sometimes and, you know, it's brought up very rarely there. It's a little, you know, it's a little unseemly, uh, but it's in a sworn, no, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking and, uh, you know, a, a real vivid testament to what kind of a person he is yeah so here, here's another question I, I have for you and this is 
this is somewhat different, but I think they relate to each other, that you were a combatant in the 2016 campaign and then in 2017 in this whole, it wasn't really the campaign exactly, it was sort of the online discussion of Bernie supporters and Hillary supporters and what each side thought about all that kind of stuff yes. that you were that you had a prominent voice and you were being attacked and it's it's funny like you were like you were portrayed online as sort of like the ultimate Hillary supporter the <laughs> ultimate Hillary shill of, of no that's near a tan come well, on we were just talking of, we were just talking about about <laughs> me near I don't well, know. Th- this is the thing you know I I I know Nira used to work for Hillary years right, ago right. so I never a, got any money from yeah, Hillary so I, you didn't you didn't play this right but but yeah. but hello yeah I know I know, know. $130,000 <laughs> well okay yeah, Hillary yeah. if you're listening yeah. just kidding yeah okay so what is walk us through that how did cuz that's not that's not your politics that's not your background but what is it about that that 2016 intra-democratic thing well how did you get how did you get into that you know it's hard to know like who started it to make it really as juvenile as possible okay because it got really <laughs> you can juvenile do you can yeah, make it juvenile um but i just perceived a kind of bullying uh out in the bernie community uh and a kind of uh, you know, dismissal of the historic importance of Clinton's run, which meant a lot to me, a dismissal of any of her progressive bona fides, uh, you know, and I had been through it before because I actually supported her over Obama in 08 because I genuinely believed, race aside, she was the most progressive candidate. She came out for a foreclosure moratorium in 2007. Um, her health care plan was more inclusive, blah, 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 blah. So I'd seen this act before. I also really objected to the fact that people were constantly blaming her for things that her husband did. Uh, and I do th- I think in the end, her calling, you know, her using the term super predator one time um, might be the reason that she's not president. Honestly, when you think about all that was done with that one anecdote um, and the way that it was used to blame her for the crime reform bill that Joe Biden wrote, Bernie Sanders voted for, and Bill Clinton signed. Signed. So I just found the whole thing so unfair. I was really prepared for a let's debate. You know, I I'm closer to Bernie on foreign policy. Uh, you know, we're going to have a good debate. Uh, and but the but the the cruelty uh, of it and the 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 pack nature of it, the bullying of it, just got me really angry. Do you think that's something? Is that something deep? I mean, obviously, misogyny is something deep in our society and deep in both part. I mean. Is is that is, sometimes that whole Bernie Hillary thing seemed like kind of like almost an epiphenomena with on Twitter, right? Yeah. But clearly, is it that, or is it is is that something deeper in the Democratic Party that we need to 
wrestle with or was it just something kind of specific about 2016? Oh, I think it's something deeper in the Democratic Party that is, is you know, with us today. I try really hard to stay out of these kinds of fights on Twitter at this point. There's still, it's not as bad as some people would have you think it is, but it's still out there. Yeah. And there are some people, and I will say, on both sides now. There are some Clinton supporters who will not let it go, who don't miss an opportunity to trash Bernie or our revolution, tag me into things that I'm just like, leave me out of it. And there are certainly some Bernie people who, you know, just are ridiculous. Um, There's less of it than it was. But I think what it came down to for a lot of us um, is that Senator Sanders repeatedly had a hard time grappling with issues of race and gender. Uh, And really, both in his campaign, and then I think, problematically, to this day, kind of centers white working class male voters. Um, You know, he's got that famous line right after the election, I'm ashamed, you know, to be part of a party he's actually not, uh, but a Democrat, whatever, he sounded like it for the purpose of shaming the Democrats that can't talk to the white working class that I'm a part of. Um, he continues to insist that most that Trump, that, you know, that he continues to diminish the role of racism in the Trump phenomenon. Um, he said a lot of really unfortunate things as he got his ass kicked in the Southern primaries about Southern black voters, you know, almost being low information or being controlled by the Democrats. And he missed opportunity after opportunity to learn. I still don't know that he's learned what he needs to learn. He got better. Um, He hired Simone Sanders. Uh, You know, he hired some some good people. He definitely picked up support among black millennials, for sure. Uh, So, so much of his message was great. But to this day, he has kind of a tin ear. Wasn't that there's uh, there's certainly a part of the American left, or maybe the left generally, that sees economics as the real thing, right? And race and and gender are things that maybe spin up off of economics or important too, but not really the real game. So it's not just Bernie. I mean, that's no, that's a no. long story. If it was just Bernie, it wouldn't really matter that right. much. Um, right. So, you know, you, you get into these arguments with, say, a writer like Thomas Frank. There's a, there's a lot of people, uh, you know, the, the Bernie intellectual left as well, uh, really tended to play down the extent. They, they tended to play down the extent to which the Democrats lost the white working class at the presidential level in 1968. You know, JFK and LBJ won about 55% of it. Uh, and then in 68, the Dem-, the Dem share, Humphrey's share, drops to like 35%. Yep. And it's hovered between 35 and 40 ever, per- ever since. So the notion that Hillary Clinton had done something uniquely terrible to lose these voters. Now, we can talk about the three states of shame, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, uh, we can, we, there are these, you know, these pockets where people did, for whatever reason, stay Democrat that she lost. So there, there's something else going on there. But, uh, you know, there was just such a way that in which they made it all about her right. being a neoliberal, uniquely costing Democrats the White House when 
no, this these voters have been fleeing. Her husband got them back, ironically, but like marginally, marginally, yeah, marginally but but kind of kind of with dog whistle politics. To be honest, I mean, you know, the execution of the mentally, you know, Ricky Ray Rector, Ricky Ray Rector Ricky, yeah, yeah. you know, welfare reform, the crime okay. reform bill, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Less emphasis on welfare. We want people to work, playing a little bit into stereotypes of black women moms as, you know, perhaps not trying hard enough. Uh, So, you know, if you want to see an example of a Democrat getting them back as Bernie wanted, that that's what it looked like. Yeah. I mean, nobody wants that now. Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing I think about is is that. You have a much larger non-white population in this country right now. Right. Um, Non-whites are overwhelmingly Democrats. Uh, You certainly have, obviously, women have had the right to vote in the United States for just about a century, but the... Uh, the the explicit the open role of gender in politics is is much greater than it was half a century ago. Um, it it you're not going to have if you, if you have like thirty plus percent of the population that is non-white, you're not going to have overwhelming support among non-whites and then all the whites too. I mean, some of this is just going goes with the nature of the transformation of American politics. Sadly, right. I mean, the Republican Party has become a ninety percent white party, and so and is and in the case of Trump, much more willing to use explicit racial well, racial coding isn't explicit, explicit racism, ex- explicit nationalist appeals um, than Mitt Romney was. I mean, I still blame Mitt Romney for Donald Trump because he validated him in, you know, 2012 by kissing the ring of this birther idiot who was the only reason he was prominent in the Republican Party was that he claimed President Obama wasn't born here and wasn't eligible to be president. So Mitt Romney and I, I know Newt Gingrich, maybe a couple of other of the 2012 folks went up to Trump Tower and tried to get that crucial endorsement, validating this guy as a major Republican. It's interesting that that sort of prologue about the 2016 campaign, because birtherism was out there pervasive in the Republican Party as these, a lot of politicians were saying something, he's just not really in tune with American values, yes. or he's, he's, he's sort of like an outsider. These, these, these statements that are subjective and you can't say are wrong precisely, but were ways to sort of push at these conspiracy theories about him not being born in the United States, maybe not being a American citizen, and then on a secondary level like Hussein, Right, like Hussein. we don't like Husseins. What's 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 going on with that? And that Trump was the one person, because politically he had nothing to lose, <laughs> who said like, "Yeah, I don't think he was born here." Yeah, it's not just out that he's kind of an outsider with a funny name, or that he went to Harvard, or he's elitist. He wasn't, you know, he's not, he's not one of us. Literally yeah. not one of us. Wasn't born here. Not eligible to be president. You know, uh, Newt Gingrich played around with. He's influenced by his father's colonial Kenyan col- anti-colonialism, and you know, I, I mean, they just said it in so many ways. But Trump said it, you know, the, the openly. Most openly, and in typical Trumpian fashion, acted like he's the one who raised. You know, he's yeah. the he real it. one behind the issue that made it a force. But that's the thing is that that really is the story of the 2016 campaign. Right, that Trump was willing to say all of these things out loud. Right, that Republican politicians for a couple generations had only 
hinted at, and that was just electrifying right. for the people we now call his base. And people, you know, make a lot of the, um, I'm forgetting the number right now, uh, of Trump to, excuse me, Obama to, to Trump, Trump voters, votes, especially yeah. 08 uh, for Obama, 2016 for Trump. Uh, you know, you have to look at the Republican Party was totally trashed in 2008. The economy was crumbling. John McCain, God bless him, even 10 years ago, looked kind of doddering and out of it as he walked around saying the fundamentals of the economy are strong. Uh, you know, people really wanted a break from that party, Bush and McCain. That's a, you know, you had white racists. I mean, I remember George Packer going to Ohio and, you know, will these white racists vote for Barack Obama and going back and saying, yeah, a lot of them did, but they stayed racist. Yeah. When they were given, you know, an an openly nationalistic, if not racist, appeal from Donald Trump. They went for it. They'd never had their own, um, you know, desire for the olden days, the, the good old white days, handed to them on a platter in a political platform before, and they went for it. So, you know, I, I really think these analyses, going going back to Bernie and other people, really leave out, willfully leave out the role of, of Trump's very skillful, unapologetic racial appeal in, in luring these white working class voters, including some who went for Obama. So what's what's the matter with white people? What's tell us about <laughs> this is a well tell us about tell us about the book and how does this Well the book is really interesting to me. I wrote a book in in I came out right before the election, What's the Matter with White People? Uh, Why We Long for a Golden Age That Never Was um came out in August twenty twelve. Uh, and it talked a lot about Donald Trump, and it talked about the increasing racial, the reliance of the Republican Party on a racial, racialist, if not racist, strategy, and the fact that whites were flock, increasingly flocking to the Republican Party, and that we were really in danger of having a white party and a non-white party, um, and and it kind of happened. I mean, I spend a lot of time on the uh, tr- people tromping to Trump Tower for his endorsement. I spent a lot of time on birtherism. I, but, I, but I also went back to the transition uh, of the white working class from being Democratic voters in the early 60s to being Republicans. And it happened in 68 and 72. It didn't, it didn't happen uh, in 2016. I also told the story through the lens of my own white working class Irish Catholic family, uh, because my family really split and, you know, very proud of JFK in 1960. Uh, but then half the family moved to Nixon by 68 or 72 at the latest. Um, partly over... And where'd you grow up again? I grew up on Long Island. Um, and where Oceanside. Long Island? Okay. I was okay. born in Brooklyn and grew up on, uh, grew up in Oceanside. Um, my father... Uh, my grandparents, my Irish grandparents were very poor, so they provided an interesting social experiment. Their first, they had six kids during the Depression, and they sent their first three boys off to join religious orders, which Catholic family, Irish Catholic families used to do. I called it foster care for the Irish poor, um, and some of my relatives st- still don't speak to me because they think that that was wrong. Um, but that is a lot of what it was. Uh, but the good news was all, of, all three of those men wound up leaving those religious orders and getting married, and that's why I'm here. Uh, and many of my cousins, who I love, are here. But they also got college education. So you see this split in my family between mm. the three 
uh, brothers who went to college, and then the three, two brothers and a sister who didn't go to college, who were Republicans. So, Now, was, the, was college for them part of the vocation track that yes. they then got off? Okay. Yeah. Right. The, the, you know, joining the Christian brothers or going, you know, going to a seminary at age 13 got you college. Uh, so my father graduated from Catholic University. Um, and my uncle, I think, from Manhattan College. But any, and my other uncle is a longer story, but he went to college too. Um, so yeah, part of it was a lot, a lot of pain, a lot of loss, uh, a lot of cruelty about it. Um, but they did get college educations, and and they became liberal Democrats, not just Democrats, but liberal, you know, pro civil rights, anti war Democrats at a, you know a tough time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I could watch what some of that was, and a lot of it was race, but it was also you know the. The, the late 60s were kind of scary. You know, we had assassination, we had so many assassinations, uh, crime did rise, the anti-war movement, you know, was largely peaceful, but some of it was not. Uh, same with the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement goes from being a very, uh, you know, obviously nonviolent, but also multiracial movement uh, to then have more of a tinge of black power and black separatism uh, and uh, just a... a moving away from nonviolence, though there wasn't that much violence. Um, Everything felt, you know, the uh, divorce rates were rising, the kids were on drugs. Uh, You know, it was it was a scary time for them. So I it's I don't think it's all oh, they were such racist. Some of them were. Um, And they saw the Democratic Party becoming the black party, which they did. Um, But I think that there was a lot of fear uh, and, and social unraveling that was happening then that contributed to how this. Does, how does that relate to 2016? I mean, because we, we I, I'm still, as I'm sure a lot of people are, trying to wrestle with what happened in 2016. Because in, in some ways, it, it, it well, you, you tell me, how does, how does that, that kind of Nixon 68 moment relate to 2016. Right. When Trump emerged, you know, I remember having debates, maybe we debated it, you know, is he is he George Wallace or is he Richard Nixon or is he some combination of both? I think you'd have to say both. Um, but he very much got uh, the racial unease of, of white men and sadly a lot of women in a country that is rapidly transitioning to majority minority. Um, uh, and I think uh, at a time of Black Lives Matter, just as, I mean, President Obama got a lot of criticism for not being more overt on issues of criminal justice reform, police reform. Uh, but every time he opened his mouth, he, he produced a backlash about it. Um, but you have this period that feels like there's more, not just feels like, where there was more unrest. Uh, completely justified. This is, you know, these uh, uprisings, riots, whatever you want to call them, were over police killings as if you look at the history of urban riots back into the 40s, they were all every single one had some element of police mm-hmm. abuse to them. Um, but but these, you know, were very extreme. But then we have a Blue Lives Matter movement. Uh, you know, we have uh, in my opinion, very racist uh, police chiefs and police union heads all over the country, and that was part of the New York story too. Yeah, big time. What's that guy's name? There's that guy. Pat who, Quinn is the one our who's. Guy. Yeah, the police. Yeah. The the, uh, the the head of the uh, police union here in New here, York. Yeah, that's him. Okay. I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that's his name. Um, and then there's also uh, there was a terrible guy I'd written about in 
Cleveland, I'm blanking on. There's just so many. But, you know, the police really managed to depict themselves as the victims. And Trump played into that, you know, incredibly uh, negative about Black Lives Matter and, and about the thugs. Um, then people taking a knee uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick and, and peaceful protests. Right. They're thugs, too. So, you know, I, I really think we had, uh, you know, Watergate relieved us of Richard Nixon and cleaned up politics somewhat. You know, by the time we Ronald Reagan changes everything, we don't have, you know, days to talk here. We should. But as I said, Bill Clinton gets uh, the White House back with uh, really paying attention to Southern male voters and a little bit of dog whistling. Um, you know, we, we're, we're making progress, but the undertow of racism uh, and, and white fear of, of losing power is just always there, pulling, pulling us back. And so... It seems to me one thing that I think is key about 2016 is that... You have uh, the, the the Black Lives Matter movement is a movement of assertion. Yes, it is not. It is not. Um, I don't know how to say it. It is. It is assertive. It is right. saying this is, you know, this is something we will not put up with anymore. Right. And 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 that kind of that kind of political assertion, which. Uh, you know, you have you have the Obama mo- moment in 2008, right. where, where to, I think, the great surprise of many of us, a black man was elected president of the United States, something right. that I, I never thought I would see happen, uh, happened. And but that's different. These are two very different kind of things. And as you say, Obama got in, in was constantly getting jumped on about, well, hey, you know, you're president now. Right. We're in this kind of post-racial thing. Why are you like stirring things up again? Right. And he would, you know, and he he would say that himself in a way to black activists. You know, I'm not the president of black America. I'm the president of all America. And his appeal in 2008, in 2012, through 2016 was remained essentially the same uh, and was a key, the key, I think, to his success. But, you know, I also think about you go back, you you go back, and I don't mean any criticism by this at all. You go back to the great civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome. It's we. It's a big we. And Black Lives Matter was necessarily, no criticism here at all, but necessarily black-run, black-identified, black-centered, all lives matter. Uh-uh. Eh, can't say that. Shouldn't say that. I understand why. Uh, but e- it, even some white liberals had a hard time with that notion. I mean, I think Hillary, Bernie, and Martin O'Malley each at some point stumbled because yeah. it seems okay. Yeah, yeah. All lives matter. Yeah. Uh, but the assertion of, no, we're going to say the word, black lives matter, Um and you're going to say it with us, I think was profound and important, but also did scare some people uh, and, 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 and rile up uh, that incredibly offensive and stupid sense of, you know, white fragility and white fear and white genocide and, you know, whites are under siege and we're the only ones who can't be proud of ourselves and blah, 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 right. blah. You know, so with the more assertive uh, generation of young black activists, you saw young white supremacist knuckleheads 
also get more assertive. And, and it kind of gave, gave – I'm not saying anything caused anything. They were out there. But it did give them a kind of rhetorical uh, niche, a rhetorical in to be able to, on their terms – Answer well. Right. We're only doing what you guys are doing. So what's next? Are we? Are we? Are we? We're in for three more years of this, aren't we? I think probably. I think we have to prepare ourselves for for that. I think you know we we really the midterms are everything. Um, I've been working really hard on a story that is almost finished about the. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in Virginia last year, and I wrote a lot about um, the Virginia Democrats, mainly women, who were surging, who had su- suddenly decided to run for the House of Delegates after. Democrats, you know, for the last 10 years, and I again, I do blame Barack Obama to some extent, decided really not to play at the statehouse level, uh, not to contest Republican seats. The Republicans saw what they could grab if they gro- grabbed all these state houses, redistricting number one, but also, you know, pass voter suppression bills, uh, tax cuts. It's just, it's been horrible. Um, and I think, you know, the Democrats won 15 seats. They almost took the House of Delegates, a re- it was a recount and then a, ha- a, a practically... Like a, like a toying cost, basically. A, yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, they, that they lost control, but they just passed uh, Medicaid expansion. You know, it's you see a lot of change in Virginia, so I'm looking at some of the states where people are the most active um, at the statehouse level, which, you know, there's a theory about reverse coattails as well, that that will help in the House races and the Senate races that really matter. So what are the states we should be looking at? Uh, I think North Carolina is really promising, you know, starting with the Moral Mondays movement, but also uh, Roy Cooper, Democratic governor, has, re- you know, really knows that he and the party need to invest in they, they've got a republican supermajority there so you know it's it's really dire but they have for the first time in recorded history um they actually have candidates running for every seat in the house of I, it's, there's this, the Assembly, I think, uh, as well as the Senate. Same thing in Ohio. Um, I think Florida is, uh, people are really looking at the Parkland kids making a huge difference in Florida, and I don't think it's Pollyanna-ish. There are other trends in Florida um, th- that can help. And then there's just, I mean, there's a, there, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of states that, uh, you know, even Texas, definitely not going to turn blue, but they've, they're fielding more Democrats at the state race level than they have since the 90s, since, you know, Karl Rove w- went in and uh, dis- helped dismantle the Democratic Party in, in Texas. Right. Uh, so that's exciting to me. You know, I, I feel like people have gotten religion, so to speak, about the importance of not just voting, but running. Um, it's largely, it, it's pre- it's predominantly, but not only women. There's a lot of millennials. Um, and that's exciting. So, I, you know, I work hard to keep optimistic and to focus on things where, you know, the positive change is possible and not just obsess about you know, what is Robert Mueller up to and when, you know, when will he deliver us? Um, right, but right. <laughs> I do look to you, Josh, though, to kind of put the put the pieces together sometimes and make me a little bit more optimistic that we're that we're moving. All right. Well, that's something like catnip while you're being optimistic about about the, the big picture of political change. So, Joan Walsh, thank you. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, Allegra, thanks for uh, subbing in for David. And thank you for listening. And uh, we will talk to you next week. Awesome.
Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.